0: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarterbit. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues from my comic book collection, which many episodes I will select kind of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 111th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Batman and the Outsiders, number 32, from DC Comics, cover dated April 1986. But first, a little feedback. And we start with a correction. Last episode, episode 110, I misattributed a comment. I said that the Sutherlands were concerned about me jumping back into a long book, the Marvel magazines, so shortly after these six, mega-sized episodes 100. But that concern was in fact expressed by Mountainflower Laurel. In my defense, they're all from the same state, so it's a pretty reasonable mistake Very understandable. A mistake anyone could make. Sorry, Laurel. And please don't report this misattribution of sources to my faculty review committee. I really like my job. On the content of that episode, The Eternals, Laurel reported that she did enjoy the episode. But I wasn't sure what was going on during some of the recaps. Your analysis of Kirby's solo stories seems accurate. Yes, as you heard in that episode, I wasn't so sure what was happening every moment of that issue either, Laurel. Dr. Ange pointed out that he's seen a theme in Kirby's work. Tortured blonde slash ginger, son of a despotic god, Orion, Captain Victory, Icarus. You know, when you steal from yourself, I guess it's not really stealing in theory. I did give Dr. Ange a spoiler, which I guess I'm giving to all of you, that Captain Victory is one of the Kirby possibilities for later coverage on the show, which was cool because Ange owns them all, and I think I picked up three or four of them from the Akron Comic Con recently at the cool price of 25 cents each. The Great Kansan Arujo warned us about Captain Victory. That's almost 100% pure uncut Kirby Crackle. Proceed with caution. (laughs) As far as the Eternals go, Greg added that this was the first issue of Eternals he read. The first issue of Eternals given to me by my grandparents. In both cases, it wouldn't be the last. Sir Martin of Grey said that, that it was another splendid episode. Thank you, Martin. But I'm afraid I've never been able to read an issue of The Eternals. Icarus looks like such a pillock with his girly hair. The art, otherwise, does look amazing. But so far as I could see, Eternals look like just another take on the new gods, but without a compelling villain. Go ahead and read more, Professor, so I don't have to. Ouch. Shots fired, Sir Martin. I mentioned on that episode that Michael Lane from Comics in the Golden Age, and the brand new Kirby cast, was a big fan of the Eternals, and he weighed in on this episode. As you noted, I really like the Eternals. Kirby could definitely have used an editor or scripter for much of his 70s work, but I think it's a definite improvement from his fourth world scripting. Not perfect, certainly. But the art he did on the Celestials was glorious. And the mythology he created of secret offshoots of humanity was fascinating. I only wish he'd been able to continue and keep it separate from the Marvel Universe. I admit there have been some good eternal stories set in the Marvel U, but they work best on their own world. Thanks again for the shout out. Of course, Michael definitely Check out all of his podcasts, especially that new one, if you're a Kirby fan. I've also received some feedback on two recent episodes of Relatively Geeky Presents, and there's no real process for going over that feedback, so here is probably the best place. First up was the Veterans Day episode, and constant feedbacker Nathaniel Wayne wrote in. He found the episode fascinating. As growing up, he was sheltered from the idea of military as entertainment, even G.I. Joe. The only toy guns I had were the wimpy water pistols of the 80s and an antique cowboy-style cap gun that had been my uncle's when he was a kid. And Boy Scouts were never an option because she felt it was early training to get into a snap-to-attention-and-follow-orders mentality for boys. And as much as it was clear my mother wanted to dissuade any possible interest in the military for me, i like to think she'd be okay if I ever needed to answer the call of combating an oppressive galactic empire. Thus, military stories are something I've never really gotten into at all. And the few I've experienced have always been more of the harrowing variety. My grandfather served in World War II and almost never spoke about it. He drove an ambulance and was involved in the liberation of one of the concentration camps towards the tail end of the war. The top officers knew what they were heading into, but the men on the ground were not prepared for what they would see there. My grandfather told my mother on one of the few occasions he ever spoke about it that he would never forget the smell of death. He passed away a few years ago, and my mother recently finished going through his old things and found a sketch he did on a scrap of paper of a man he saw in the camp, almost skeletally thin, with striped clothing falling off of him, holding out an empty food bowl. I suppose this is a long-winded way of saying that the world of the military has always felt alien to me, on pretty much every level. Utter respect for those who serve, surely, but I don't get it. And I was pretty much raised to ensure that that would be the case. So for me, to hear these kinds of stories and perspectives is always an enlightening experience. And I want to thank you for bringing it to my ear holes, Kinkley yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Thanks so much for this, Nathaniel. You know, we always assume that our specific backgrounds, the way we were raised, we always assume that's typical, that that's normal, which is one reason why it's valuable to associate with folks of different backgrounds. Of all the types of diversity that have been deemed important in recent years, this type of diversity, be it sociological, geographical, nature of the upbringing, that's one that doesn't get brought up often enough. Now, we Middletons do not have military background in the direct family, but nonetheless, I suppose I do have a more traditional, quote-unquote, view of patriotism and military service, and those views have become deeper and richer as I've gotten to know veterans, mostly as students, over the last few decades. These kids, who come to my classes in their mid to late 20s from the military, they just tend to be so much more prepared, more disciplined, more mature than their contemporaries that it is noticeable. Of course, they also may well bring psychological issues to the campus that their contemporaries uh, do not. Sir Martin of Grey reported for feedbacking duty as well on this episode. Terrific episode with some great commentary from the guests. My brother was in the RAF, but I couldn't even face being a Boy Scout. Cheers to all our service personnel. Yes, Sir Martin, cheers to them all. Laurel Mountainflower thanked me for doing another Veterans Day episode. Really enjoyed it and your guests. Always great to hear veteran stories related to comics and their experiences in the armed services. Thank you for sharing with us, and I thank them for their service. Jared Albrecht, one of the guests on that episode, replied to Laurel saying that it was an absolute honor to serve this great nation, especially because it's made up of people like you. Aw, isn't Jared just the sweetest? He also got into... uh, Uh, Twitter back and forth with his co-hosts Pat Sampson and Delvin from Longbox Crusade. Mostly, they talked about how amazing it was that I was able to edit Jared down to just 30 minutes, seeing as that's usually how long he takes introducing himself on that show. Old School Ross chimed in, pointing out that, that Jared was not just an officer, but a communications officer so liking the sound of his own voice is sort of in Jared's military DNA. But I've got to give the captain props on his choice of haunted tank. Great stuff and very entertaining podcast. Love the war comic talk. And I heard from Darren Sutherland, fresh from a recent European adventure with Ruth. I wanted to take the time to write and tell you how much I enjoyed this episode. You had great guests and covered great comics, and I thoroughly enjoyed your conversations, and thank you for the promo at the end. I always appreciate that. Thanks for celebrating our veterans and our fellow comic friends on this excellent episode. Take care, Darren. Certified Canadian Gore Tolton said that he listened to the episode on Canadian Remembrance Day. Before I get to exactly what he said, I did want to say one thing. On some of the blogs and the Facebook uh, promoting and, and announcing the episode, I included uh, Remembrance Day in the description of that episode, but I failed. I, I should have done that in the episode itself uh, to be inclusive of the uh, Canadians and, and, and the UK and other nations that sacrifice their people uh, for the war effort. Now what Gord said was this. Thank you, my fellow nerds, for their service in protecting my frozen flanks. A big mounty salute to you all. I've enjoyed the episodes that I've done with vets, and imagine that I'll do one again in a few years. On the other episode, our Business of Comics talk, most of the feedback was very similar to this tweet from Karen from the Between the Pages blog. Great team-up episode. Rob's story about his parents was wonderful. It's pretty clear who walked away as the star of that episode. The generous Canadian, Rob Lance. Likes and retweets and shares for these episodes came from many of the souls that I've already mentioned, as well as such fine folk as Resurrections, the Warlock Thanos podcast, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Dr. G from the Pulp to Pixels podcast, Russell Rosenkild, Noel Thingval from Grey Stoked, the Tarzan podcast, The Long Box Crusade, Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics and podcast, Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, Scott Gardner, Derek William Crabb, Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sale artist, Kyle Benning, Judah the Hammer, Paul Matthew Carr from the Collected Edition, Bobby Peru, Gene Hendricks from Tutu Freaks, Old School Ross, and Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace. Thank you for all that support. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be talking about both Batman and the Outsiders.
1: Andy. I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast.
2: We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about?
1: Something no one else is talking about. Batman.
2: (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do
1: one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh,
2: ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run.
1: But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we
2: could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index index show. Great! Uh, I guess we should do a trailer.
1: I think we kind of just did.
2: Yeah, but it's missing something. Like, you should have added music behind us or something.
1: Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast.
0: We've
2: been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about?
1: Something no one else is talking about. Batman.
2: (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one.
1: True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those! True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh,
2: ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run.
1: But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well.
2: And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show.
1: Great! The Overlooked Dark Night, the non-index-index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month from the Fortress of bailey Podcasting Network.
0: And we're back. Batman and the Outsiders number 32 had an original cover price of 75 cents, a very nice and easy two-thirds markdown of the original manufacturer-suggested retail price. The cover by Alan Davis shows Batman walking away from the outsiders, leaving them saddened and shocked. There are nice shadows on the page, and on the bottom of the page is Batman's shadow in the shape of the cowl. And in that shadow... In gold ink is the signature M.W. Bar. Oh wait, sorry, that's just my copy. Because when I was at the Akron Comic Con a few months ago, I had this issue signed by its author, along with some issues of Maze Agency and a couple other comics. The story in Batman and the Outsiders 32, a New Wars winning was written by the aforementioned Mike W. Barr and drawn by the aforementioned Alan Davis. We start in Europe, somewhere in Markovia. Princess Alana is preparing to move from being a princess to being queen of Markovia. But the ground rips open in front of her motorcade and she is abducted by Baron Bedlam and his masters of disaster. Two days later, in Gotham City, some underworld types have noted that since the Batman hasn't been seen in a few days, they need to team up, unify their forces, and together, they can make Gotham criminal again. The meeting is interrupted by Matches Malone, who was deeply hurt that he was not invited to this shindig. The outsiders, Katana, Halo, Metamorpho, and the soon-to-be TV star Black Lightning are all listening, waiting for matches, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman, to give the key word. When he does, they crash the meeting. I mean, they literally crash through the roof into the meeting and manage to capture the gang. They all pitch in their powers, but the key to this mission was Batman's tactical organizing skills... He does praise the team, sort of, by saying that they actually acted like a team for once, and this time followed his orders. Geoforce, a.k.a. Prince Brian, of the aforementioned Markovia, wants to check in on his nation, but Batman tells him that they have other rats to clean out first. Dr. Jace, from Markovia, does contact him and informs him about events in his nation, and she also reveals that she has left messages for him over the last few days, but that Batman has prevented him from learning the truth in order to keep him in Gotham. They argue about whose people are more important to protect to keep safe, Brian's people in Markovia or Batman's people in Gotham. The outsiders actually take GeoForce's side. Katana points out, that they've worked hard trying to earn Batman's praise, but whatever they do, it's never enough. If that's the way you feel, fine, the crabby crusader says. Fine. Effective immediately. The outsiders are dissolved. As Force is getting ready to head out to Markovia, he is joined by the rest of the outsiders, who decide they're going to stay together as a team, and now... They must find a new headquarters outside of Gotham City. Because even without him, they're still the outsiders. The depressed Dark Knight tells them to go ahead and leave him. Even though he, in fact, just kicked them out. Dick left me, and I suppose Jason will too someday. It doesn't matter. Soldiers come and go. But my war never ends. The End So as my podcasting brother-in-arms, Trenus Magnus, likes to ask, what did I think of this? Well, let me start with my Batman and the Outsiders history. I was into this title when it started, mostly for the combo of Batman, and I'll admit it, Black Lightning, two of my favorite characters at the time. The presence of Metamorpho helped too, to be honest. I like the idea of Batman trying to train up a bunch of second... Okay, third or fourth tier characters. It's interesting. We think of Batman's skill set to include the planning and and, and logistics functions and all of that, uh, strategery, and from that you'd think he might be a good team leader. But Mike W. Barr doesn't seem to think that he'd be such a good leader, that's for sure. And we can look at his history with those many Robins and wonder how good a mentor-slash-father figure he actually is. Some heroes just don't work well with teams. Interestingly, this outsider's type of, of setup is also what one of my current favorite DC books is doing, the Rebirth version of Detective Comics. In this book, Batman is running a new team of basically outsiders. No, they're not called that but he has batwoman kate kane and has a second in command and the team includes batwing orphan red robin spoiler and my favorite new addition to the team clayface that series has not been as melodramatic in terms of the the interpersonal as this issue of batman and the outsiders is but the cape crusader's inability to work well with others is certainly part of that current detective comic storyline and evidently that type of Batman story works for me. Now, I look through Mike's Amazing World, uh, the cover gallery for Batman and the Outsiders, and I would guess that I stayed with this title until about issue 20 or so, just in terms of covers that I recognized. This was when I was in college, and my comic selections were much less consistent. It was based on whenever I got to the store, which is usually every couple months, maybe twice, maybe three times a semester. So some of my collections became pretty spotty at this point, and I was starting to read more indies around that time, a lot of them in the, the black and white variety, and books like this fell off the list. I was definitely out but by the time of this issue, issue 32, and I did not read any of the follow-up adventures of the Outsiders title. On this issue specifically, there's one really nice moment that I want to mention, that I want to point out. When Matches was meeting with the bad guys, Batman's silhouette shadow appears on the wall on the other side of the room, and that's what sends the bad guys into a tizzy. It was, in fact, Metamorpho, shape-shifting in front of a bright light to get that shadow silhouette effect. And that was, a, again, a nice bit of Batman's strategic thinking, to use Metamorpho as a distraction. I don't think I see Metamorpho doing stuff like that much, because mostly my image of Metamorpho is him changing his fist into an axe or a sledgehammer to punch something, or, or to punch somebody. But again, this, this bit of, of trickeration in the Batman's plan... I thought that was a nice touch. I do have to say, I don't really dig Katana here. Uh, At least her looks. I like her bowl-cut hair, but not so much the red and yellow suit, which is strangely puffy in odd places. Much better looks for that character followed once she got out of the 80s. But then again, the same thing can be said of many of us who were adults in the 80s, actually. In general, I do like Mike W. Barr's handling of Batman. I mean, I had this issue signed by the man. So, of course, I'm a fan. But maybe he wasn't the best at handling a team book. That is a particular comic book writing skill. And it doesn't mean that Barr's not a really good Batman writer. But looking through this issue, a lot of the team members don't have those standout moments during the fight. I mentioned the metamorpho bit. But most of the rest of those four or five pages are just pretty standard comic book stuff. Actually, they're mostly Batman beating people up, with the members of the team maybe doing one little thing to add to the fight. I mean, it's, it's not bad, but nothing really stands out. Just that metamorpho moment with the silhouette. But everything else was just pretty standard. But the drama of the story was good. And the way Batman was handled was also good. And that's the most important part of Batman and the Outsiders. And again, that's Barr's strength, writing to Batman. So that that part is certainly not a surprise. Overall, it's a pretty solid story. And I think a really reasonable way to write Batman out of the title. Now, there is a second story in this issue. So let's take another break here play another Batman themed promo and when we get back we'll take a looker at the backup story
3: hey everybody magnus here at trennis magnus punches reality i talk about comics movies and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, Big Magnus, Big Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, uh, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crap load of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is The Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of The Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennus Magnus Punches Reality Mega Series. Be there in February 2018. Trennus Magnus Punches Reality can be found at twotruefreaks.com as well as iTunes.
0: And we're back. That lead story took 15 pages, leaving seven to talk about Looker's Body, an Owner's Manual, which was written and edited by Mike W. Barr and drawn by Alan Davis. This is a follow-up to the backup from the prior issue, which I didn't read, which told the origin story of Emily Briggs, a.k.a. Looker. We start this one with our hot redhead looking at herself in the full-length mirror giving us a full-length look at her red-headed hotness. And she's wearing some lingerie. When I was young, my father read me a story about an ugly duckling that became a swan. All my life, I wondered what it was like to be a swan. Now I know. And I wonder how I ever survived. Those long years trapped in that mousy little clerk denied my true heritage. And I think by true heritage, she means her red-headed hotness? She wakes up her husband Greg, telling him that they have a busy day ahead of them. This is the day a new life begins for the two of us, and I can't wait to get started. So the two of them go off to take a shower, which I'm guessing is just a water conservation ploy, or at least that's what the Comics Code Authority must have assumed. Emily buys some expensive clothes and likes that the construction workers whistle at her because, 1986, she then uses her superpowers of red-headed hotness to get a fancy table at a restaurant. Greg doesn't know what to make of this change in his wife, but she reassures him that she's a better person now, but she's still his. She also decides to change her name, to Leah. Leah is then swarmed at the restaurant for autographs on the theory that she is so beautiful that she must be famous. And with the table surrounded by autograph seekers and overeager waiters, she decides that she's gonna like being Leah Briggs. She heads into her job at a bank where they don't quite recognize her, but once they do, She tells them she hasn't come back to go to work, she's come back to quit. Her sleazy boss doesn't want her to quit and promises her a promotion if she stays, seeing how much you've changed. Back at the apartment, she tells Greg she's quit her job, but quickly changes the subject when he asks why. Enough about work. How do I look? You know, this place could use a few more mirrors. As they snuggle up on the sofa, Leah gets angry, seeing an old picture of herself, and smashes it. She decides it's time for them to go to bed instead. Yes, I'm gonna like being Leah Briggs, and Greg's gonna like it too. The end. So, as the ginger podcaster from Texas, Trennis Magnus would ask, what did I think of this? well, Actually I want to start with what someone else thinks of this. Because given the fact that this backup story features a redheaded hottie, I thought I would get some opinions from an expert in redheaded hotness. Someone for whom redheaded hotness is sort of a specialty, a special subject of interest. Yes. The irredeemable shag. Because back on the Who's Who podcast? He and Rob Kelly actually talked about Looker once. And after some tense negotiations, during which I promised to stop calling him the remedial Shag, at least for the duration of the holiday season, he gave me permission to use some audio from that podcast. So here we have Shag, and maybe Rob too, on Looker.
3: I hate everything
0: about this character. <laughs> everything about this character.
2: Her costume is ridiculous. It looks like, um... Like, my daughter buys... My daughter's seven. She likes to buy different things, like dress-up Barbie stuff. And sometimes, like, you'll get these, uh
0: paper construction build a build a Barbie costume sort sure, of thing. Sure, yeah. Like fifty different parts and you construct your your dress and if you don't use the matching parts it looks insane.
2: That's what this looks like. It looks like someone used a bunch of mishmash parts to put together the costume, which may be intentional. It may be like this plain Jane girl, this is her idea of what a hot costume would be. And <laughs> the whole idea that it's a plain Jane girl and she turns into this hot chick. It's sort of living a fantasy thing, whereas like, it should be more of a tragic story to me. It's just, oh, there's so many. Yeah, this is. got has got metal powers. I, even
0: the red hair doesn't save her. I just, I can't stand this, yeah, this thing. This, this, y- and you know what happened to the character later on down the line, right? No, I don't. She became a vampire. All right, let's move on. For God's sake. <laughs> Thank That's you. Ridiculous. All right, let's just go. He didn't actually just say vampire, did he? Ay, ay, ay. I don't have strong thoughts on Looker myself, because before this, I had never read a story featuring her as a hero. Her first appearance was seven issues before this. And like I said earlier, by this point, I was out of this title. And now, of course, having read this, I still really haven't read a story featuring her as a hero. Because that's not what this story is. This takes place like a day or two after she has her transformation from what I can interpret from this issue. So it's a flashback to before she's actually taken up the mantle of Looker. And from what I read here, I'm sort of siding with Shag. That, I mean, was another part of our negotiation that I'm not really allowed to disagree with him too strongly on things. At least during this episode. But he was right. This is such an out-of-date story. So out of step with 2017 especially where we are right now, at this point in history, with all the sexual harassment stuff being uncovered in entertainment and politics, in the media, and in the comic book business. This was a totally weird story, a weird situation, and I guess a lucky husband. But this does not exactly put forward, you know, positive body image issues. The whole idea of this story is that before she was hot, she was nobody. And now that she's hot, she's somebody. And she's taking advantage of it. And the world is bending to her whim because of it. And that all of her insecurities about her looks disappeared once she became hot. What message is this story trying to send? It is a weird story. It's a weird character. It's, I guess, a lucky husband. But still, it's a weird now, we do have the great advantage in this story that she is not in her hideous looker outfit, but is actually in standard normal clothes. Well, normal for a woman in a comic book. And like I said, I am contractually obligated in this episode to agree with Shag, so... She is smoking hot. True dat. There's not much else to her than that. And I guess the problem is... Not just that there's not much else to her than that. It's that she is reveling in the fact that there's not much else to her than that. I mean, at least in the story. At least there's not much else to her than that. Like I said, totally weird. I just, I do not know what to make of this backup story. Given that the verdict on Batman and the Outsiders 32... Look, neither of these stories is great. I'm not going to lie about that. But the lead story was good. And in the context of that version of Batman continuity circa 1986, it was kind of an important story. Like I said, I have no idea what to make of this backup, but I don't think I hated it quite as much as Shag probably did. So this is not an all-time great steal by any means, but the first two-thirds of it are solid, And the last seven pages, kind of confusing. So therefore, this does qualify as a quarter bin deal. And that wraps up my coverage of Batman and the Outsiders 32, bringing episode 111 to a close. That was a weird one. Have I I mentioned that recently? That was a weird one. On episode 112, we'll be looking at another of the DC retroactive books. From 2011, a little over a year ago. In episode 86, we looked at the Wonder Woman uh, 1970s version. And next up, in episode 112, we'll be looking at DC retroactive Justice League of America, the 1970s. From DC Comics, of course, cover dated September 2011. And if you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Mike W. Barr, Looker... Shag, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the Quarterbin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, or the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age, short box showcase also make their home links to facebook and twitter are there as well feedback for the show is welcome at relatively geeky at gmail.com and if you like what we've got going here please leave a review and a rating in itunes it'll help more people discover the show thanks again for listening